Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So if I were to ask you, when you're at a dinner party with friends, what are two things you never talk about? What would your answer be? Politics and religion. Isn't that an accepted cliche today? We avoid those topics. But why is that? Or maybe a more important question is, is that something we should just accept as good and healthy? Or is it something we should seek to change in a positive way because it's unhealthy? I mean, we all know where this rule came from, right? We've all had those family reunions where you've been with that person that you love or at least can tolerate in the family who uh, you don't want to bring politics up around because they go off. Or uh, so you usually avoid it. Or if you're a little bit like me in some of my ornery moments, I like to bring it up because I like to see them go off and I like to see the reaction that everybody has to them. I just, it's, there's a certain amount of entertaining value to that, right? All of us feel really deeply about these political and social issues. It's the reason we have strong reactions sometimes. These issues are really really important to us, and they touch on very deeply held beliefs for all of us. So if they're that important, if they're that important, isn't it unhealthy not to talk about them? Shouldn't we be talking about them in healthy ways that preserves healthy relationship for us? In this new series, Trending, we're going to deal as, with an as honest of a nonpartisan look at what the Bible does say and doesn't say about some of the biggest trending political social issues today in our country. Uh, during this season of mudslinging, we often call an election. And I know that many of you are probably tired of this topic. You're probably avoiding the media. You may not want to deal with it at church. But as followers of Jesus, if you're like me, I think, I think we need right now some reminders, some grounding from the Bible on how to personally navigate this time period uh, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. And I think it's important for us to take a look at what the Bible does speak to us about these topics. Because the Bible has a lot to say uh, about the fundamental issues we're going to address. And there are some of those issues that uh, the Bible, a lot of people also assert that the Bible says about stuff that the Bible doesn't really say what people say it says. And it's really more of their opinion. Our whole goal of this series is to open a, po- open a positive dialogue for us to wrestle with faith in Jesus and what God's Word teaches us and inform how we approach making decisions about voting and, in most importantly, navigating relationships around politics and social issues. We're not going to tell you how to vote. We're just going to try to give a grounding for you to think about it more deeply. In recent history, a lot of these issues have become a whole lot more talked about in in public, but they've been primarily through impersonal means on social media. 
And in the midst of, in the midst of that increased talk, we as a culture have become much more polarized and less able to actually talk productively about these important issues. These graphs you're about to see uh, are a Harvard study, and it's uh, looking at 1989, 1998, and 2013 and comparing them. And what it shows you is the voting relationships in the Senate. There were a whole lot more across the aisle working in 1989, and now in 2013 it's almost completely polarized in the relationships. And the next graph actually shows you the House and the Senate levels of polarization since the late 1800s. Now, on this graph, the higher the, the plot goes, the more polarized we are. So what it shows us is simply this. What we're experiencing now in American culture is not completely unique. We've been here before in government and politics in the past. But it also shows us that the polarization today exceeds that level of polarization that was in America for the 40 years following the Civil War. And it's becoming a really big issue. And here's the problem when it comes to divisiveness in politics. We live in a representative society. We choose who we want, and we elect them. And you may say, no, I didn't vote for either of the two presidential candidates that are primary, the primary bigwigs in the, uh, of the, the major parties right now. I, I, I didn't vote for that kind of divisiveness. But, but the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, almost every candidate who runs for major office today campaigns divisively in a polarizing way, with polarizing rhetoric throughout their campaign. And you probably voted for one of those, even though they didn't win the primary this time around. And the even sadder problem for us today is that any politician who tries to avoid polarizing rhetoric gets no media attention, and they lose in the polls. Congress is polarized like never before. Since we, and since we are a representative government, Congress is a reflection of the polarization of our families, of our friends, and of our communities, and of our own hearts, the people we interact with each and every day. And we as a Christian church, we've contributed negatively in some ways to this polarization as well. In the last few years, there's been a surge of what are referred to as nuns, Nuns are defined as people who claim no religious affiliation in the U.S. The Pew Research has noticed that the nuns have skyrocketed to 23% of the population, going in seven years alone between 2007 and 2014, from 36.6 million all the way to 55.8 million Americans who label themselves in a way that they are categorized as nuns. Now, among those leaving the Christian church... The top reasons given are things like learning about evolution and when I went away from college. And that's actually going to be part of our next series, which is going to be called Non-Trending, in which we're going to deal with some of the really big issues of our culture that are not necessarily trending, but they're recurrent issues that we have to deal with and we think about as a culture. But the reasons that specifically apply more to today's discussion are these, some of the top reasons given for becoming nuns. They say, I see organized religious groups as more divisive than uniting. And I think that more harm has been done in the name of religion than in any other area. Who we have chosen as presidential candidates 
and other candidates represent who we are as a culture. And we, ourselves, have become polarized and divisive in our language towards those we disagree with. I mean, look, we, re- we elected a, a reality show icon who is egocentric and loves to put people down who disagree with him. And we have a woman running for president who, even among her own party, according to an NBC poll published on 818, the vast majority of her own party consider her untrustworthy. What does that say about us as a culture? And whether we voted for one of these candidates or not, you and I, the church as a whole, have played a role in the polarization of relationships in our culture today. Paul addresses this in one of the most profound places where he talks about government and politics in Romans 12 and 13. It's a longer uh, section of Scripture we're going to read today, and we're going to deal today with just a few portions of it. It starts saying this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on your head. And I don't have time to explain that whole cultural thing, but that was not a mean thing to do back then. It was actually a good blessing to do, the way if you understand the, what that's referring to. But I don't have time to explain it, so let's move on. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Skipping down a few verses, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now let's go back through this today, just highlighting a few portions of it. There's this verse in there that says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And that in and of itself is a really strong polarizing statement, isn't it? If we take it just as is and apply it to life and especially politics, if we apply that, then we, we see a candidate who believes something we don't believe morally or we think is biblically wrong and evil, and, and we say, well, hate what is evil and cling to what is good, right? And truth be told, hate is alive and well 
and can be seen in, in studies even like this one. The bottom two lines of this study actually talk about the warmth of feeling of the, that Republicans have for Democrats and Democrats have for the other party, the Republicans. And you can see that it was fairly average for most of many of our lives that started to slip a little bit in Clinton and slip a little more in Bush, and it has precipitously fallen off the scale in the last eight years. And there is such antipathy anger, hatred across political boundaries. A Penn State study actually brings us a little bit closer to home. In 1960, 5% of Americans answered a survey that they were doing that said that, that said that they would be displeased if their child married outside of their political party. By 2010, that's actually jumped to 49% of Republicans would be angry if their kid married a Democrat, and 33% of Democrats would be angry if their kid married a Republican. That means, for many people in America today, they actually have a harder time with their child marrying somebody of the opposite party than they do with marrying somebody of a different faith. You get that? Hatred, though, as Paul is talking about, isn't the whole picture of what Paul is saying as we sometimes look at that and read it. He actually starts by saying, love sincerely. And he goes on to describe that love in many ways, but he says, honor others above yourself. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Bless those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, give him drink. Serve them. So, if you examine the way Paul talks about hate within that context, and the way the context of this whole verse, it's, it's really more so that Paul's trying to say to us, be sure about your personal passion of what is right and wrong. Be very clear on that so that you feel so strongly about that that it almost feels like hate. But that's not how you're supposed to relate to people. That's just you being clear in what you think and believe. But he says the way we relate to people is how. We treat them with kindness, and we look for every opportunity to serve them. We pray for them regularly, and we don't pray for their destruction or their failure. We pray for honoring them and hopeful, kind intentions in mind. We pray for God's best for them. So the question is, how are we doing with that in regard to the people we disagree with so strongly politically? Even those who we hate, what they stand for, even those who violate every value that we hold dear and stand for, how are we doing toward those people? See, a clear stance for righteousness and not evil needs to be something that is clear and passionate and in us as, as, as this level of hatred, but it's not hatred towards others. Because when that hatred goes towards others, it results in another problem. We lose the ability to see and think clearly on the issues. And that's also shown really well in the research. There's another one that talks about um, brain researchers. I guess I don't have a slide on that one. Brain researchers before the 2004 election, they got an equal sampling of a whole bunch of Democrats and Republicans. And they hooked them up to brain scans. And then they would show them stuff that completely threatened their candidate. 
while they were hooked up to the brain scans. And you know what part of the brain lit up? It wasn't the reasoning side. It was the emotive side. And they noticed in the research that whenever they actually came to a conclusion, which was fairly fast, as to what they thought of what they were seeing, that the same part of the brain lighting up was the exact same part that lights up when a drug addict gets his fix in those moments. You see, what all too easily happens is because we have such polarization and antipathy and distrust toward people of the party with whom we disagree, emotion takes over. Reasoning decreases. We cut off relationships and we stop listening. I mean, many of us don't like to look at the news that we disagree with. We don't like to look at Facebook because we don't want to hear somebody post something that makes us angry that we disagree with. And, and we become selective in the news we listen to, listening primarily to the one that goes most along with our views, our views and reinforces our views. And, and we cut off relationship and we stop listening. And that the Bible in Proverbs 18 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no, under, no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In verse 17, the one who states his case seems first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. The one who states his faith, place for his case first seems right until the other side of the story is examined. Through these verses, we see this need to listen, especially when we disagree strongly and emotively, in order to find the just and right way through things, but not just what is right and good to do, but the right way through it relationally as well. To bring unity and honor to relationship, to bring respect, to be both truthful and gracious. Wisdom and truth can only be found by listening and examining both sides of the story. And that takes time. And it takes a lot of work to know someone's story that makes them think the way they do and understand what brought them to that place of belief and why they believe what they believe. Have you ever thought about why you have such a strong reaction uh, to someone who so strongly disagrees with you? Why it is so hard for you to exercise at times patience to listen to someone who opposes your view so strongly, maybe even in an offensive manner? I've been through a lot of conflict situations. I mean, come on. I mean, church, we're dealing with core beliefs all the time. It creates conflict. If you don't believe it does, just, you know, come on my side of the fence for once, for a little bit here. But I also spent 11 years as a consultant going into conflicted situations and turning around. And I spent many years doing counseling. And I saw plenty of conflict in marriage and all sorts of stuff. And I learned something about myself in all those conflict situations that I don't like to admit a lot of times. And I think it's something that is very common to all of us as humanity. When I have severe impatience and struggle with getting overly angry with people I strongly dis disagree with, it is almost always because I'm feeling threatened and in some measure insecure. And who likes to admit that you're insecure? I mean, nobody likes to admit that. 
I feel like I'm being personally challenged or, or my integrity is being personally challenged or my ability to live peacefully and live the way I want is being taken away from me by someone else and feel out of control. And when I, but when I, when I back away from that and go back to my faith and I start thinking about Jesus as my security, as my ultimate security, it helps me to listen more non-defensively, even to the most horrible opposition, because it doesn't threaten me as much. If you find yourself regularly angry over political divides, I want to invite you to prayerfully examine where your source of security is. Is it really in Jesus, regardless of what go, what's going around you, that you trust his goodness for you no matter what's happening around you? Or is your hope in government? Or is your hope in your need to be right and get approval from other people? Or is your hope in the comfort of your lifestyle and your economic situation, and when that feels threatened, all everything goes out the window as far as your comfort? If your hope and security are in anything other than Jesus, if they're in the government or approval or your way of life, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to be agents of reconciliation and peace across these polarized relationships. In fact, it's also going to be really more difficult for us to even effectively represent the gospel of Jesus Christ and lead people to faith in Jesus because we will struggle so much with showing the grace and patience necessary to walk people through their stories and understand them and build the relationships that allow people to come to faith or even be influenced to change an opinion. If your security and hope is anything other than Jesus, your anxiety and fear will bleed out and it will tend to add to the polarization of the relationships instead of being a solution to them. See, unless we deal with the antipathy and the anxiety and the polarization within ourselves first, we will find ourselves unable to relate effectively or even judge rightly. Not just relating, we won't even judge rightly. There's another study done in June 2014. They took a thousand participants and they handed each one of the thousand participants the same set of resumes and said, we want you to choose from this set of resumes the students that get scholarships. And the students all had their resumes, but they also had in every single resume one line that would indicate their political affiliation, like some of them said president of Young Republicans Club, or some of them said the same thing about the Democrats. But every single one of them, evenly divided, had some reference to a, a, a different party. And they found in that study that overwhelmingly people awarded the scholarships to the people of the same party, regardless of the fact that there were clearly people of the other party who were far more uh, qualified, and they merited the scholarship a whole bunch more than the others did. Now, some of you as parents with kids going into college, right, scholarships applications, you may want to pay attention to that and remember that. You might want to change a few of those references and make it more neutral. If nothing else today... This message is a call to biblical reasoning instead of us being hijacked by our own emotions, to treating others justly and fairly regardless of political leaning, and to be biblical 
in our approach to relationships above differences. I mean, during this highly conflicted, conflicted seasoning, a season of mudslinging politics, it's a call to stay out of the mud, to be winsome, wise people in our relationships with others in a way that politics and faith, the really important things of life, become something safe and productive to talk about because of the way we learn to do that and love and honor and listen, especially to those who disagree with us. Because if we're patient enough, as Paul says, and serve those with whom we disagree, it means that we've actually gotten close enough to them in friendship that we know what they need. And we're actually trusted by them to serve them and be a part of their life. And that also means we've had to get past our initial emotions of hate and learn to listen and respect and build trust and see those with whom we disagree as people loved by God and that we learn to love them as well, even in all of the tension. There is a time to speak, and we should. But building this kind of a relationship is the place to start, to take away that argument so many of the nuns give that church is divisive and Christians are divisive. We need to show them the love of Jesus that calls us to be the most gracious, peacemaking people in the world. This election has also brought to the surface another bright neon flashing light shining in all of our faces. That's a really, it's a burning question for many of, that many of you have been pondering. I've heard you talking about it. It's hotly debated in the media. The pollsters are all saying that this question could result in a horribly low turnout at this election. And that question is essentially this. How can I even vote for one of these two primary party candidates or any of them out there? Because they're all so obviously flawed. Put another way, how can I as a Christian vote for either one of them who so obviously does not represent Christ well in their morals or ethics or in some ways in their values? They violate Christian ethics so much. And here's what we need to wrestle with from the same passage that we're looking at in Paul. This letter is called the Romans. It's called that because it's written to the Christian church in Rome. Do you know who was Caesar? In Rome, when this book, when this letter was written, it was Nero. Do you remember who Nero is in history? Many historians look at Nero and they think, based upon his own megalomaniac desire to rebuild Rome for his own glory, that he himself ordered Rome to be set on fire in AD 64. The result was three quarters of Rome burned to the ground, and many, many of his own countrymen lost their life. He was immediately blamed of doing that by many in that day. And in order to shift blame away from himself, he blamed it on the Christians, resulting in some of the most intense persecution in all of history against Christians, arresting them, killing them for sport in the arena. Many of them were nailed to crosses and uh, that were stuck in the ground in his garden, and then they were lit on fire at night for a light show for everybody to gawk at. It was his own way of fireworks, living human torches. Nero is right up there to be, to be considered as the most depraved, cruel of all the Roman empires. And what does Paul say about him in the text? He says, no, he says no slams. He says no cries in the text about how corrupt he is. He doesn't go and say, Nero's the Antichrist. 
He doesn't write a whole bunch of books and proclaiming from the housetops and posting on Twitter and Facebook everything he can to out him as evil and fight him. No, Paul says love, respect, honor. Show patience under persecution. Serve and care for those who persecute you. And if Paul can instruct the Christians then to live with that kind of grace and patience and respect in relation to Nero, there's absolutely no reason why we should not feel fully capable of making a decision and exercising our right to vote and our duty to vote, even with such imperfect candidates, and to be able to show respect and honor in that way. See, Paul is not saying... We shouldn't and can't talk about the issues and the differences. One of the assertions the Bible makes over and over again is that he wants all of us as followers to talk about these important issues of our faith and our politics regardless of the threat to us, regardless of the antagonism towards us. He wants us to be leading voices in talking about these really important issues of life. But the Bible is also really strong in telling us how we should behave in the process of doing that and how we should think and how we should manage our emotions and how we should talk about these really, really important issues, especially with people with whom we disagree, even those who don't treat us with the same respect and are offensive towards us. See, Do we live, as Jesus says, by the golden rule? Do we treat Hillary and Trump or whoever the candidate, or do we treat our neighbor in the same way you would want to be treated in having a conversation about these important issues? More importantly, when we're in our relationships with our colleagues and our neighbors, do, do we ask questions and listen so they are fully heard and they feel fully respected? Or do we just primarily try to influence it by sending out Facebook memes and demeaning jokes about their ideas and their beliefs, even though we know they're friends with us on Facebook? Do we soundbite people instead of truly listening, using pieces of their words as ammunition to show how we are right and how they are ridiculous? Or are we careful to represent them fairly and well? and take the time to really understand them, not just by sound bites, but by the context of everything they say. You see, there are so many unproven innuendo headlines in our media today about the political candidates, regardless of what party they're a part of. Do we restrain ourselves to read through those and see whether that's really just innuendo that's truly pro- or, or whether it's truly proven? I mean, the innuendo we know in the end may possibly be proven to be true. But are we fair enough and patient enough to not repeat gossip that is not yet proven and try to say it's fact? I mean, if we were a candidate or if we were having a conversation, we would want to be treated that way, right? We wouldn't want people to take our words out of context and soundbite us and make us look like we're uncompassionate and evil, right? We would want that same thing. So do we give it to other people? I mean, so much of the media's headlines and reportings is more akin to gossip than it is to reporting facts. I'm now in my 50s, 
And I can remember even at five years old, growing up in Minnesota, watching the Hubert Humphrey-Nixon debate. Anybody remember that here? Anybody old enough to remember Hubert Humphrey-Nixon debate in the late 60s? Every single presidential election since then, especially among Christians, a large percentage of people have said this. They've said, this is the most important election in all of history in America. Presidential elections are always important. Maybe this is more important than ever. I don't know. But if you're going to love people the way Jesus asks to love them during this election, you need to back off from that brink of disaster emotion that is so honestly not invested in Jesus. It's invested in the government as our security and our ability to be happy. We're looking for the government to do something Jesus can only do for us. We need to put our trust more in him. We need to learn to pray. And we need to, we need to allow our hearts and the Spirit of God to come to us and speak to us about how we live these words of Paul out in this time so that we love our enemy and that we're careful and we become the church that allows God to work through us to change the polarization in our culture because of how we live with genuine respect and deference and patience. We need to be people who show this kind of respect and learn to not just be friends with faith, which we talk about a lot, meaning we allow our relationships to the point where we can talk about this important aspect of faith in a friendship in a way that's really inviting and welcoming. We probably also need to learn to be friends with politics as well. Because God is calling us to be agents of healing across all of these differences, to love across them, to listen across these differences, and to speak up in ways that don't alienate those with whom we disagree in relationship. God is calling us to bring people together rather than contributing in our own small ways to a government that can't even solve the simplest problems because they're so divided they can't talk across political divides and accomplish anything because they can't work together. I mean, who wants to talk and work work with someone who berates them as evil? Who will ever be positively influenced by people who vilify them? See, the Bible tells us in James to be quick to listen and slow to speak. So we do speak, but we speak first with good questions that show the other person we value them because we value hearing them and respecting how they think. We're quick to listen, slow to speak. You don't have to become southern drawl slow. That's okay. You can speak fast. But we're careful with our words. We filter out the put-downs. We think it through really well so we're not communicating innuendos. We're very careful to stick with what is clearly truth and not just rumor. Speaking in respectful ways and compassionate ways towards those with whom we disagree. And we don't just speak with personal opinion. We also speak informed by God and His Word. See, if you disagree with Hillary or Trump, whichever it is, how can you, the question is, how can you say the substance of the facts of that disagreement in a way that communicates clearly, in a way that communicates compassion toward that person you, you, you disagree with, so that they walk away knowing they are loved by God 
because you loved him well, even in that disagreement. And so as we begin this series in the home stretch of this political season today, we're going to call you first to the most important activity that Paul talks about, and that's prayer. And I know that's hard for many of us to continue to pray because we feel so much apathy, we feel so much hopelessness with our government right now that it becomes really easy to not pray and just fall prey to the cynicism. I struggle with it. I struggle with it. I'm sure you do as well, right? But Paul says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, because prayer changes things. Even in our history, the Great Awakening, the largest, fastest expansion of Christian faith and correction of morality in a culture happened because it started and was birthed and bathed in prayer. And as part of that prayer today, I want to invite you to repent for any role, however small or big, we have had together or you have had in the divisiveness and polarization of relationships in our society. In the Old Testament, we see God speaking to a future of Israel and talking about a time when there would be this kind of sin and turmoil and problems and political divides. And in Second Chronicles, he says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will stop putting ourselves above those people we label as ignorant or evil or wrong or whatever, and instead will identify with them and get to know them and have compassion toward them and pray so that we'll turn to God with prayer, looking to God for the answer, not the government or not our standard of living or anything else around us, and seek my face, which is another way of saying we're going to try to seek God's truth, which is what we're trying to do around these issues in this this series. We're trying to look at what the Bible can say to help inform us. And we turn from our wicked ways. We repent. We change our sin toward others and our sin toward God by relating to others as Jesus desires and by pursuing truth from Scripture to inform how we should think and believe and feel about these things. And he says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And the healing of our land starts by, the, by dealing with the polarization and alienation of relationships that is going on right now. And it starts with you and God And then moves to you leaning on God to help you learn to live out this Christ-like way of relating that Paul tells us about. Now, I wasn't sure whether this message would elicit a bunch of questions. If you have them, I'll take a look here in a minute and we'll try to give just a moment to that in a minute. But I want to just start by taking some time to pray right now. Together, individually, if you, want to, if you want to pray with people next to you, do that. If you just want to pray individually. But, but can we just all start by just turning to God in this moment and repenting for the small ways that we've added to this polarization when we've allowed ourselves to believe the gossip and present it as fact, where we, when we've allowed ourselves to use demeaning terms to label the opposition rather than terms that would accurately represent them as human beings. Lord, we just ask that you would come right now and that you'd help each one of us see how we've contributed to this. Because, Lord, if we can't see it, there's no way we can help our culture see it and change. So, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me for the ways that I've allowed my cynicism or hatred of... uh, things, uh, stances and, and, and people who have taken those stances that, that go against 
your values, my values, or in, that I've perceived that have harmed me or harmed others, Lord, would you, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? Maybe just take a moment to say that in your own words, under your breath. Then maybe the next step is for us to pray for those who we have opposed, that we disagree with most violently. And we ask God to come into their life and to bless them, to bring good to their life, to bring his good to their life. And we ask God for ways to show us how to care for the friends and the neighbors that we have maybe offended with our political views and how we can turn that around. So take a moment with that. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. And would you continue to come to us, even throughout the days and the weeks that come, as we read stuff, would you bring checks to our spirit that we would know when we need to back away from something, we need to think differently, and we need to pray the way you want us to pray, and we need to talk the way you want us to talk. Would you give us the winsomeness, Lord, to be the difference here, that we could make this difference among ourselves, that because of the way we treat our friends and neighbors, that, that, that we would be able to make a difference politically there, but, Lord, that they would also be drawn to your goodness and your kindness because it's you that leads us to do this and that many people would come to faith. Would you allow us to change New Albany and Westerville and the surrounding areas, Columbus and the surrounding areas, and would you give us the privilege of being the people who break this cycle of polarization? And even because of the way we live our faith in you and the power that you give us, we change this nation so that this nation can once again deal with even the simple things but can deal with the hard things in a way that brings goodness to us. So come and make us that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. I just got one question, and I'll close with this before we return to God with a sense of worship, because I think it's important that we connect with him in a moment again. As Christians, we all have, or should have, the question says, the same set of core beliefs. How then can there be such political divide among us in the church? It's a good question. It's a question a lot of people ask. Um, let me say this as politely as I can. It's a little bit too simple of a question. And we're going to be looking at this over the coming weeks. Because let's just take even the issue of poverty. On the one hand, the Bible says we should show great compassion towards those who are in poverty. On the other hand, the Bible also says don't work, don't eat. 
And why does it say don't work, don't eat? Because God created us to have a purpose in life, and there's a certain dignity that only comes by serving that work that God wants us to do in life. And the Bible talks about these two poles, but there's a lot of room in between to disagree politically over which one needs to be emphasized right now in a certain city or the nation. Some would argue that we need to spend more on giving to people and the government needs to take a role in that. Some would argue, no, the government needs to do less and we need to create more motivation for people to get out of the dependency that sometimes handouts create. There's plenty of room to disagree politically on how that looks in our culture today. So the Bible, yes, we can have the same beliefs, but you might have the same belief and somebody might decide to be of one party and somebody might decide to be of another because of what you perceive as the right answer for today's moment. And I think we're going to discover as we deal like next week with immigration and deals with some of the other issues that the Bible does a lot of that, setting up these posts that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit and rely on the moment to determine what is the right thing that brings freedom and blessing at the greatest level possible for the people we are trying to meet needs for. And again, that allows plenty of disagreement in political party. So with that, would you stand with me? And let's just take a moment to let this song, I know we're going a little bit late, but let's not worry about that. We'll just take this song and allow your heart to declare again, God, I trust you. I find my security in you. No other place as much. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.